0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh.
1: And I'm Kimley.
0: And each episode, we focus on one book about music. It could be a, a history of a particular type of music, it could be a musician's memoir or a biography of a musician. And today, we have a very special guest and a very interesting book. The book is called From Elvis in Memphis, published by 33 and 3rd Books. And the author is Eric Wolfson. And our guest, by coincidence, is Eric Wolfson. <laughs> Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did? Yep. Because okay, I'm more concerned about Eric. I was I was concerned about him. <laughs> oh, no, you got it. It's like clapping. Okay. okay. <laughs> Great. So, you know, first of all, 33 and a third books focus. Uh, as a format focused on one album, one author, usually. Uh, they have done like 150 titles, something crazy like that. And From Elvis in Memphis is the Elvis Presley album made in 1969? Correct. Yep. First of all, two questions. Why are you interested in Elvis, one, and why this particular Elvis book?
2: Um. So I basically, I got into Elvis when I got my first uh, boom box when I was an eight, when I turned eight years old um, and I asked my parents what I should listen to, what radio station they said, um, what do you want to listen to? I said, oldie, I said um, the Beatles. And they said, well, listen to oldies one Oh three. I'm originally from Boston. So that was the oldie station there. So they played almost no Beatles on that station. It was pretty much <laughs> all older stuff. Um, and so I got, You know, for every one Beatles song I heard, I heard about five Elvis songs. Mm. And Jay Gordon, who um, is now nationally doing the show, originally did it out of Boston. It was the Elvis-only show on Sunday mornings. Mm. And he would have, um, like, Elvis's Housekeeper, one of the Memphis Mafia guys. So I would listen to that every Sunday morning. And I just, I got hooked. Um, And, um, yeah, and so for, I was always a huge fan. I um, went to Memphis when I was, I think, 13. And we went to Graceland, but I was even more blown away by Sun Records and just all that. And um, i just always been interested in the history of rock music, where it comes from, how it started, mm-hmm. um, and sort of the implications of that socially and in terms of um, an American identity and a historical aspect. Um, the uh, And so anyway, I grew up, you know, huge Elvis fan and just loved him more and more as I got older. Um and 33 and a third is, um, you know, I discovered the series, um, I guess, when I was a little out of college. And, of course, they not only didn't have an Elvis book, but except for the James Brown volume, which is, for my money, the best volume in the series. If, if you yeah, I love that it. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, one the, of my favorites. Yeah, the by Wolk. It's it's wonderful. What's, anyway, mm-hmm. anyone, everyone should read that. Except for that, they didn't even have an artist who was active in the 50s commercially that had a book. James mm-hmm. Brown was the only one, and that album was from the '60s. I sort of saw that as a missing link in the in the you know series, and um, mm-hmm. so I originally pitched a Jerry Lee Lewis book um, for the uh, ha- for the Live in Hamburg record, and um, basically found out later that someone else had actually already pitched that, and then got a different Jerry Lee book deal out of that. Um, mm-hmm. So then I decided I was going to set my sights on Elvis, and so for the next I think eleven years. Every time they had an open call, which is oh, yeah. about every other year, because this is pretty much the only place that I'm aware of in the industry where they have non, where they take unsolicited manuscripts through open calls, mm-hmm. um, right. and it's just a free for all. Um, and so for the next ten years, I only submitted Elvis Presley albums, and wow. so um, yeah, so I submitted about four or five before this for um, the Sun, the original um, Sun Records. 76 LP compilation. I did his self-titled first album twice. I did the um, Million Dollar Quartet sessions with Jerry Lee Lewis and mm-hmm. Carl Perkins, um, and then this is the one that stuck. And it's funny because I was I was gonna after the Million Dollar Quartet one wasn't taken. I I swore to myself. I said, "Well, I'm not going to do Elvis again. Like I've learned my lesson. They're not interested." <laughs> so I was gonna do um, the Sesame Street sing along record um, <laughs> from from like. 76 or 75. And um, basically, I emailed every living person from Sesame Street that was involved with that. And the only one I heard back from was the Voice of Prairie Dawn. So (laughs) I got sort of frustrated with that, although the Voice of Prairie Dawn lady is is quite lovely. Um, And so I was just like, well, I guess I'll give Elvis one more shot. And so the obvious album to choose that was left that I hadn't already pitched was from Elvis in Memphis, which as I thought about it more, it was interesting for me because... Um, By the time I was pitching this, I was in my late 30s and it's definitely like a very adult, mature Elvis kind of coming home and reconciling Mm -hmm. the kind of like what's what's default, like a young person's genre, sort of like what what does it mean to be an adult? You know, as the first generation of rockers, Elvis and those guys were the first to also get old as rockers. Yeah, Um, Yeah. and there's and there was no precedent for what to do, so he followed the Rat Pack, you know, and like went to (laughs) Vegas, whereas most of the other of his peers just kept sort of doing tours to dwindling crowds forever. Um, So it's really, uh, so it it was just it's an interesting crossroads, and it's just a great record. And um, I also really wanted to um, talk about. Um, sorry, I have a lot to say about this, out <laughs> uh,
0: That's <laughs> <And those> good. <laughs> motivations.
2: Um, one thing that I really wanted was uh, pretty much a lot, most of the stuff you read about Elvis is all like Elvis, 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 Elvis. And for me, the best moments of Elvis's career, which are for me, Sun Records, the early RCA stuff, and then like the, um, the sit down sessions at the 68 Comeback Special, the sort of like unplugged type show. Exactly. All those- yeah. All those, he has a band yeah. and a really, really good band. Mm-hmm. And it's always, it, I always feel like it it always sort of doesn't do credit in a way when people just start talking about Elvis, because, you know, you wouldn't have Elvis if you didn't have Scotty Moore and arguably to a lesser extent, Bill Black and these, yeah. these musicians that really um, helped shape the sound or if only, if nothing else made him comfortable enough to let himself go. Yeah. So I really wanted this to be a portrait of, um, like a band making an album, and I really tried to. Elvis is obviously the lead person, but I really tried to um, talk about the various musicians and um, sort of. Thankfully, for me in any way, they weren't. They weren't super famous. There's only really been one book written about the American Sound Session Studios, which is where this was recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a phenomenal book by Robin Jones, Memphis Boys. And uh, it was invaluable to my research because she basically interviewed everyone before they passed away. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it so but there isn't a whole lot about them sort of in the rock literature world. So it, I kind of yeah. also want to shine a light on them because um, they're sort of this nice underdog story. Um, and right. you know who doesn't love a good rock and roll underdog story? I live for them.
1: I think a big part of your book is all about how his recording this album at American Sound was really what made it so great. I mean, you talk about how, you know, they were willing to tell him, no, that's shit, Elvis, you know, right. <laughs> and, like nobody at that point in his career was willing to do that.
0: Absolutely. So that's such
1: an essential part of the story. And it's really nice. You do spend a lot of time in the book talking about American Sound and Chip's moment. And-
2: so who is Chip Moment? Um, Chip's moment was a sort of maverick, renegade rock and roll guy. He, um, his real name is Lincoln. Um, Chips was his uh, name from early youth because he loved gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, someone named him Chips and it stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's from Georgia originally, I believe. He then, I think, kind of drifted up to Memphis and played, I believe, in um, uh, Warren Smith, um, mm-hmm. who's probably most famous today for Eubangy Stomp. Um, but he had a he had a couple sort of small hits in the Memphis area and whatnot. He, he played uh, guitar in his band. Um, and at one point, Warren Smith was a label uh, mate with Elvis, I think, at Sun Records. But mm. sort of through that greater scene, um, he played rockabilly with him, and then I think he joined, I want to say, like Gene Vincent's band, and mm. possibly played with Johnny Burnett. And basically, sort of a who's who of '50s rockabilly guitarists. Mm. Um, and then he came; he ended up coming back to Memphis eventually and co-founded Stax Records, and not only helped to found it, but he found excuse the pun please the uh he found the actual um old movie theater which is um the site of stacks records uh-huh, so uh-huh. he actually scouted the location where they set up shop he also uh-huh. produced "G whiz by carla thomas which was the records the label's first hit uh-huh. um and so he was very integral to kind of the sax sound and you know working as a producer and just sort of all around a and r guy he felt like the two people that had um, founded Stacks were ripping them off financially. Mm-hmm. So he quit um, and basically set up sort of his own studio under various, um, under various guises and whatnot. And it sort of eventually turned into American sound studio by the mid sixties. Um, and he gathered a, a group of musicians um, generally now called the Memphis boys mm-hmm. who were the studio band and are generally considered one of the best um in-house studio bands at the time in terms of really only I think the you know Stax band and the Motown band and then the Wrecking Crew out in California I think would be the only other things that could broach comparison.
0: What what is the time period of the uh uh, of that band the studio band? Uh, They came together
2: around 66 I think Mm -hmm. um I it was um the first time I think all five people plus chips Mm -hmm. um played together i think was on bobby wood who then played piano on the elvis record Uh he had a small hit um with the song that elvis later covered um if i'm a fool for you which was elvis's father's favorite song Mm -hmm. um and uh so he had a solo album because he had like a minor you know it hit like 80 in the billboard chart or something i see um so they all so when he uh made an album They did it at that studio and they all, all the guys were there already and he wasn't in the fold yet, but he was, it was his album. So they all contributed tracks and they believe that that Bobby Wood album is the first time they all got together, which I think was 66 or so. And then about a year or two later, um, Wood sort of joined as a member and other people like Bobby Wombach, who was there a lot, sort of, I think, faded back and Spooner Oldman, both of whom are sort of legends in their own rights now. Um, and it sort of became the standard band that Elvis played with that then is the, you know, they're also the band that played on the Dusty Springfield um, from uh-huh. Dusty in Memphis and uh-huh. the Box Top Hits and the uh, Neil Diamond, Sweet Caroline and all this, all this amazing stuff.
0: And he's associated with Dan Penn as well? another Correct. Man. Okay. I yeah, became yeah. a Dan Penn fan recently.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm not. I, I need to learn more about Dan Penn. I just know him as the sort of songwriter, um, you know, co-songwriter. They wrote um, the Do Right Woman song yeah. for um, Aretha. And I think they wrote Dark End of the Street. Yes. Which was, a, yeah, William Bell. And then the Burritos, the Burrito Brothers did both of those on that first yeah. record, which is phenomenal.
0: The, the Dan Penn uh, recordings themselves, or they might have been demos originally, but they're, he, he's an exceptionally good singer. and I think Really? I'm, yeah. Oh. they great.
2: He's great. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna check that out because he definitely struck me as more of a sort of like scene maker, coolest guy in the room type person. As opposed, yeah, to
0: that's his image. Yes.
2: Yeah, he's like the one, the only one with besides Elvis with sunglasses on. I feel like
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like a, he looks like a
2: Velvet Underground guy. Yeah,
0: white t-shirt, jeans. Yeah, no.
2: sunglasses. Yes. Those, like Lou Reed, like sunglasses. Yes, cigarette. <laughs> a Memphis version of Lou Reed. <laughs> right. <laughs> except he can. Except he has a beautiful singing voice. Apparently. Yes, I mean, so does Lou Reed in a very different yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. So it's kind of amazing, you know. That the from Elbows in Memphis was recorded in 1969, mm-hmm. and it's, you know I look albums released in 69, and it's like stuff like Led Zeppelin's first album, you know, The Beatles' Abbey Road, and then uh, you know Springfield's Dusty in Memphis. Yep, uh, recorded the same year. Uh, James Brown say it loud, black and proud. Yep. Scott Three by Scott Walker, uh, the third Velvet Underground album.
2: Right, yeah. Uh, Not Cohen, to mention Abbey Road.
0: Abbey Road, and the day before that, from Elvis in Memphis came out. Proud uh-huh. Mass Replica by Kevin, by Kevin B. came out the day before.
2: <laughs> ah, that's amazing. I didn't. I knew that that was that year. I didn't know it was so close in proximity to Elvis. So, so
0: somebody, I mean, what are the chances that somebody walked in the record store? and
2: bought both the Elvis and the Ken B part record together. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It would have been Lester Bangs, I think. (laughs)
1: Uh, Good call, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's interesting that the Elvis record, to me, it really sounds like Elvis. You know, he's not, it doesn't sound like he was trying to do what was going on at the time, and yet, obviously, it was still a huge success. Um, he still found a big audience for it. And I was wondering, do you think at the time it was released, it was popular with people in their teens and twenties, or was it still really his fan base from the fifties that made it popular?
2: That's a really good question. Um, Elvis is one of those people that, you know, even the stuff, like even the sort of lowest level stuff they've released that had the most limited audience would still sell a couple hundred thousand copies. So he was like very reliable. Mm-hmm. In a way that um, you know, usually rock music doesn't favor, um, yeah. unless it's like the Beatles or someone who's like so consistently brilliant. Um, yeah. And for Elvis, there was really sort of I think it was Grill Marcus who used the term "blind product," which um, unfortunately mm-hmm. is a great way to de- describe you know the vast majority of his of his output. Um, so I'm under the impression. If I was a betting man I think that um, it would probably skew towards the older people um oh, yeah. just because when you do think of 69 you do think of more like the Zepp, you know, Zeppelin or you know the Rolling Stones let it bleed. I mean there was so much going on that was really kind of that mid 60s generation sort of after Elvis that right. um and the fact that that the album wasn't that much of a hit and to this day it still hasn't gone platinum um I mm-hmm. doubt it was one of the ones that really broke through to um, the younger audience, at least in, in that time. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, because even like, you know, Rock Intelligentsia, I would imagine something like the band's self titled album, which also came out that year, was a big hit. Mm-hmm. But that's something where I think it, younger people got pulled in, but then so did sort of older people, you know, that were mm-hmm. contemporaries of the band and whatnot, you know, really were into mm-hmm. it. And of course, he had the, you know, Dylan, they had the Dylan stamp of approval. Um, right. Mm-hmm. So I imagine it would probably be. I don't think it. I don't think it rose higher than 13 on the Billboard charts. So mm-hmm. my guess would be probably, and this is a complete just shot in the dark, but maybe like one third younger, two thirds older, something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. My guess as well.
2: It's
0: fascinating. You know, I've seen the um, the Elvis in the Round many times from um, in the, in the, in the TV show he did in '68. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing to look at his audience. <laughs> well. <laughs> That was a very
2: manufactured audience, though. I mean, mm-hmm. they purposely the colonel or whoever was kept on pulling down the girls that he thought were pretty to sit right by the stage and everything. So mm-hmm. it's funny because that's always hailed as the first time he's performed before an authentic audience in you know eight years since um, mm-hmm. he had done the Pearl Harbor benefit in '61. Um, and uh, which, by the way, I didn't learn this till recently. The whole reason why there's like the Pearl Harbor monument got built was because Elvis did a benefit there and got people's attention about it
0: oh. and oh, wow. now
2: it's this huge you know beautiful monument to the people that died at pearl harbor and i guess it was on un- it was like half done and so elvis did a benefit there and then that like got people interested so they started sending in their money and whatnot and um anyway so the 68 comeback special was the first time he would recorded I- he'd performed in front of a live audience since that um and um but at the same time, it wasn't like a you know anyone come and see him. It was definitely I think geared towards fans and whatnot. I mean, there weren't exactly there weren't exactly like screaming twelve year old girls. Like everyone did sort of seem to be more like mm-hmm. uh, you know late teens, twenties, thirties, at least to mm-hmm. my at least to how I saw it. Uh, yeah,
0: it's interesting how it's it's it, to me it's interesting how Elvis in sixty eight in nineteen sixty nine uh, stood out just because he's Elvis. But also, he just had nothing to do with that generation, really. I mean, he's very much, you know. When I brought up the audience, the audience all looked like sort of they look kind of square, very square compared to like when you watch Dick Cabot and he yeah. had the rock people on. They're all like hippies and you know <laughs> deranged and Janis people.
2: Joplin and yeah, uh, yeah.
0: So it's like a it's totally. Too, I mean, it's such a straight world, and then a, a, a rock world. But the Elvis world, though it's straight world, it's it's a very odd and very strange world at the same time.
2: No, you're, you're right. And the Dick Cavett, too, it's the famous, you know, Hendrix, where he goes, oh, well, you know, Dick Cavett's like most times when people play the national anthem, it's done in a beautiful way. And Hendrix is like, my way was beautiful. And then the audience goes wild. It's so cool. Yes. Um, <laughs> Elvis has this weird thing, because I think because he's, he was so, so big, and we forget how big he was in the 50s. But he really, he spent half of literally one half of 1956 and one half of 1957 with a number one song, Mm -hmm. um, on the billboard charts. And it's one of those things where he was, you know, a whole culture formed around him the way that I think the only other comparable figure in modern American history would be Marilyn Monroe in terms of simply like an icon for its own sake, as opposed to someone who's an actress or a singer or whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think by the 60s, then the Beatles come along and he sort of pushed aside and whatnot. But at the same time, he can't really quite go away. It's never going to be like Fett's Domino or Little Richard or um, the Everly Brothers, like just sort of playing oldies shows because um, in part, I think because he was just that much bigger, but also the way that he was handled and managed by uh, RCA and the Colonel, especially they, you know, kept him away and they had him do movies and sort of kept it so that there was very, you know, he had virtually no contact with the press. And so it it had this aura of mystery and the Beatles and Dylan and a lot of those guys that were coming along that were then sort of unseating him as the King, arguably were then actually huge Elvis fans. Yeah. So in a way, you know, it's like on one hand, yeah, he's obsolete, but on the other hand, you've got, you know, John Lennon saying before Elvis, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of this weird dichotomy. And I've always seen the comeback stuff, um, sort of the both the special and then this album um, in in early 69 to be uh, sort of like Elvis, almost as like an um, outlaw, like coming back. Like I've almost considered it in, in its own way more akin to like the birds, you know, Sweetheart of the Rodeo or, uh-huh. or Dylan going country in terms yeah. of um, this counter-counter culture. Yeah. Like you've got all the hippies and then Elvis to his credit, you know, doesn't want to do, isn't interested in that. And frankly, neither are the Memphis boys, you know, they never, there's, they never really did except for the electric sitar on some of the, um, box top stuff. They didn't really do like, you know, full out psychedelic music because mm-hmm. they sort of had a rootsier, more, I think what we would call maybe Americana sound, definitely a more of a funk soul sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those things contributed to it. Um, and yeah, Elvis is just, it's weird because he's central, but then he's sort of not, um, and you know, he's back and, um, it's, it's hard because I feel like after the Beatles, it's hard to, the history of rock and roll sort of splinters and Mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, there isn't a lead person as easily as there was where it's like, you know, Elvis is King in the fifties and then, you know, the Beatles and Dylan come along and then it just sort of gets into a million a million right. little pieces.
0: So from Elvis in Memphis, is that your absolute like favorite Elvis album?
2: Um, in terms of an album of original material that was all recorded for the purpose of that album, yes. Mm. So I personally if I mean if someone put a gun to my head and didn't put any um, you know, limits on it, I it would be a hard choice between this and the first self titled studio album. And the reason why I don't put that in the same category as this is because at the time, um, part of his contract, they had gotten all the um, sun rights to his sun recordings. And there were a bunch that he had um, songs that he hadn't released yet. So they did. um, So five of the songs from his five of the 12 songs from his first album were actually old sun songs that were basically leftovers. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, phenomenal leftovers, but leftovers nonetheless. And so really, it's a hodgepodge of like seven new songs with like drums and piano and sort of more modern sounding and then five sort of more um weird sounding country sun songs Uh so i sort of don't count that as a full studio album because it's really like seven studio songs and then the um and then the leftover stuff right Um, it's
1: like a compilation
2: exactly i personally see it more as a compilation because they selected the um this the you know prime sun spot stuff They also left off any singles, which to its detriment, um, whereas this, um, you know, has the lead single on it, which is nice and actually fairly unusual at that point, at least for Elvis albums.
1: I like in the book how you go through each track on the album talk about the recording. But um, an interesting thing that I thought you did was you tied it into each each song. You sort of tied into an important subject in his overall life, you know, his relationship to his mother, his masculinity, his artistic insecurities. So talk a little bit about the um, structure of the book and how you came to do that.
2: Sure. Um, I've never I have never read a bad 33 and a third book. All the ones I've ever read have been worth reading for one reason or another. Right. But in terms of my personal tastes, I always like the ones that I, I think of as a one-stop shop about an album. So mm-hmm. I want to know all about the album. And, um, you know, some people use these, obviously there's a whole, you know, some people have Done novellas, you know, or fan fiction, or um, just mm-hmm. different different takes on it. But I personally, my favorite ones have always been the ones that just tell you everything you need to know, like the the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique one and the um, Live at the Apollo and the Highway sixty one and stuff like that. Um, I'm just personally mm-hmm. not as interested in sort of the memoir side of it, um, mm-hmm. and so I really I really wanted to take myself out of the book as much as possible and basically write a book like like one that I would want to read basically Mm -hmm. um so I really I wanted the album to be the structure of the book so that's why it starts with the you know cover side one side two back cover because it's Mm -hmm. it's literally going through the the you know physical album um Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what makes it special is and sort of keeps it tied to this tangible object that now you know people people now just think of albums almost as like a playlist, sort of this ephemeral thing. And so um, in doing that, I also didn't just want to, you know, be like, okay, he uses a Gibson Les Paul, you know, 33, 62 guitar, whatever. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I recognize that, part of the great thing about this series is that people read these books that aren't necessarily interested in the off, auth- in the artist. So mm-hmm. part of me also kind of wanted to write it. Like if you were only ever going to read one Elvis book, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> let's, let's get a fuller picture. Cause um, you know, part of what makes him great as an artist um, is the fact that he's, you know, his best music really ties into these much broader themes, both, of a national like american interest but then also his own life and um his life is so um such a like an american success story and it's you know it's it it's almost like you couldn't make it up it's so seemingly cliche um that for me it it just speaks to a lot about um america and its values and how we see ourselves mm-hmm. and you know how we're seen Um, So I really wanted each song to almost sort of function as a portal to another aspect of Elvis's um, life or sort of history. Um, So, I, you know, there's a chapter about his mom and the chapter about um, sort of his country music background. And um, I just try to go different places with different ones. And also that way it's more like sort of a collection of 12 short stories in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. they're still documenting the the song and the recording and everything, but um, that you know, as it, keeping the themes, hopefully, would keep it a little bit fresh for someone that isn't interested in just like how Elvis logged through and um, you know recorded it. There's some thirty three and a thirds where they go cr- chronologically in order that the songs were recorded, and mm-hmm. for me, it really you know these these are books about albums, and so it makes the most sense to me to actually um, you know, go in the album order and sort of honor that as like sort of the official sort of talisman for lack of a better word.
0: I, I actually um I, I read the book a second time, but oh, I read it I read it
2: as I listened to the album. Oh really, great.
0: It was a great relationship. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it, was it was very
2: interesting. I, thank yeah, I listened to I listened to this album nonstop for months as I wrote this. I just um,
1: I'll bet. I'll bet. I always listen to uh, I would read the chapter and as I was reading it, you'd be saying something about it and then I'd go listen to the song and read a bit more and go listen to the song again. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> that's, that's the best thirty three and a thirds are the ones that make you want to put the record on. That's what I always say. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right.
2: And thank you. That's very that's That makes me feel so glad to hear. Um,
1: Yeah, and I felt like it was a great intro to Elvis's life story because, I mean, I'm one of those people. I I like Elvis well enough, but I'm not a hardcore fan. Um, But I do, you know, obviously, I I really respect his place in rock and roll history. He's obviously an iconic person and his story is very interesting and compelling and so um, yeah i thought this book was a great intro to it and it's it's definitely a compelling book regardless as to whether you like the music or not you know it's just such an interesting story
0: he's such a unique figure i mean he says you know there's like there's nobody really
2: there isn't the beatles isn't. are the closest thing in rock and roll i think um, but even there, they are in their own category too. But just
0: yeah. the narrative of his story and his life, you know, and the, uh, and his relationship with his mother and his father, especially the mother. And, yeah. And how he sort of right. came seduced or or just sucked into the colonel's, you know, Colonel Parker's world, and and never left that world. That's kind of interesting. You know, like it's in a way,
2: it's like a Gatsby story with then like a a Faustian story in the middle yeah. of it.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> I feel like Elvis didn't fully grown up. I didn't feel like he'd grown up by the time he passed away. I feel like he no his, his life stopped
2: he was like figure he was still figuring stuff out. I feel like he really he was so protected and so insulated, and that was really you know with the book starting where it does with him you know walking down the street mm-hmm. um, that for me is such a powerful Elvis story and one of my very favorites where um you know right. he's working on the comeback special and they say, oh well, you know what do you think would happen if you walk down the street? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I don't know either. I think nothing would happen. And then <laughs> yeah. they go and they check it out, and sure enough, nothing happens.
0: Right. Um,
2: and it's sad. Like that's that's one thing that I've also really been pleased with that I've heard from people. that have read the book is that they see Elvis as a sympathetic figure, mm-hmm. whereas before mm-hmm. they sort of just thought of him as just well, maybe they didn't think about him at all, or they just sort of thought he was overrated, or. You know, just like sexist or whatever. and he definitely is not a perfect person and definitely had lots of extramarital affairs and you know, is a person of his time. but um I think he still is a good person. and um, unfortunately he he was so, you know guarded in his time that it's really hard to get inside his head. He's sort of it's almost in that way, he's almost like sort of a Lincoln figure, um, yeah. al'beit a much, you know less important Lincoln figure, but just um, the fact that there's sort of no central autobiography or interview to really go by. You're sort of going by everybody else's view from the outside. Right. The other thing that stands
0: out for me about Elvis is that, you know, he didn't write his own songs.
2: Right. Yeah. Which
0: is tricky. Yeah. But yet, you know, his contemporaries like Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis on Sun Records, they all wrote their material pretty much. Yep. And Little Richard, of course. And then, of course, the greats like Gene Vincent, Buddy Holly, you know, amazing. And Eddie, Eddie Cochran, another amazing figure of that time period. Yeah. And yet Elvis somehow stood out from those guys as a unique voice, yet he didn't do original songs. You know, it's just sort of a strange.
2: Yeah. Original. Elvis is, I love Elvis in part. Cause he's almost, he's almost like uh Jeffersonian in that he's just got all these impossible paradoxes mm-hmm. that he keeps inside of him. And that I just, find endlessly fascinating and that and that's a huge one that you just stepped on now with the with the not writing his own songs really the only other person from his era that even did that was i think jerry lee lewis who supposedly co-wrote the b side of his first sun records song uh, end of the road even though i think they've since found that there's like a irving berlin song or something that right. actually was the song but um yeah and elvis again he really um i actually i um i've done research for the copyright office and they um you know his name is on some on some songs but there's virtually no evidence that he um co-wrote them they were really just a financial kickback um mm. as like a reward for recording the song and as far as i can tell he just was never interested which blows my mind but mm-hmm. every you know the few times that i could find him on record speaking about songwriting he was always just like doesn't interest me i don't know how to do it i'm not really that's not my thing and in um, Priscilla's uh, memoir, she says the same thing. Um, just mm-hmm. that it never, it wasn't something that interested him, which, you know, except for there's a one song he co-wrote about his mother and that's pretty much it. Everything else he did was more arrangements and whatnot. And again, mm-hmm. I think that speaks to, um, well, the talent of his of his singing. Um, mm-hmm. Just he was that great of a singer that he could kind of, you know, function like that. I also think he's the, in many ways, he's this sort of cultural at this crossroads because, you know, he very much comes from this Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra tradition mm-hmm. of singers and people that are known for their voice and mm-hmm. that that's the number one thing. But then, you know, as as you point out, a lot of his early rock and roll peers like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Fat Somino primarily wrote the majority of their hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elvis didn't. And, you um, it's sort of—I mean—it's the way that it was. He had—he had really good songwriters doing it for him, but um, yeah, I, that's definitely a frustrating paradox because the temptation is always to let the song sort of serve as an insight into Elvis's state of mind, but you can't do that if he didn't write it. If that makes yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to me. I don't, yeah, yeah, you, know, you know, a
0: lot of times I used to have these sort of brainless, mindless discussions with rock dudes, mostly about you know, <laughs> they didn't write their own music, therefore they're not. Right. Like,
2: and that's such a, like, post-Beatles Dylan construction. Yes. But yeah. I still think it's, I know exactly what you mean. Like, I think it's, I think it's valid. It's hard to, like, you know, it's like the monkeys or something like that to take it to the other extreme. Um. But yeah, there's, it's, like, in order to be a serious rock and roll artist, you need to be sort of a one a one person, you know, songwriting um, sort of hit show type thing. Um, and with Elvis, he wasn't. And I think that's another thing that I find fascinating about from Elvis and Memphis is that, you know, all the albums that we're naming from 69 that, you know, is generally considered the greatest year in rock mm-hmm. ever, just because of all those albums, plus Woodstock and Altamont. It can um. be. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's between 69 <laughs> and 66, I'd say. All right. um, but uh, he, uh, this, this album, you know, he didn't write any of the songs, but mm-hmm. it's still, for me, an artistic triumph, just the way in which he's committing himself to the songs, the way he's sort of letting himself be influenced by the musicians and the people around him. Um, and that it's, you know, as I would argue, it's as close as we're going to get to Elvis making a personal statement right. um, mm-hmm. in terms of like a studio album. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah, thank you.
1: And it's also, it's such a great comeback story, you know, we all love the comeback story and he's, you know, dealing with these insecurities and, and making artistic decisions that, you know, get him to this point, you know, after he'd been doing sort of all this schlock of, you know, these movie soundtracks and stuff.
2: Yeah, no, and that's, def- and that's sort of, that was another kind of um, bonus to the writing this book is that this period um isn't super mined in terms of information about it. Like the, um, you know, the Sun Records stuff has been written about and then the early RCA stuff and then to a lesser extent, the comeback special. But this is sort of, for me, the fruit of the comeback special. Like he, you know, that was almost a fluke in a way. Um, and then all of a sudden he sort of had this credibility that he hadn't had in, you know, over 10 years. And so he actually uses that, you know, as kind of a blank check to then cash in on this amazing talent. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that, as I said in the book, he defied the Colonel to do the comeback special the way he did. And then he defied the Colonel to do these sessions the way they did. Hmm. But then, you know, the Colonel sort of um, then books all the Vegas stuff. Then that summer, the summer 69, and he does his big Vegas debut. Um, and then that sort of, you know, on one hand, That has to be separated from his, you know, what we think of as sort of the jumpsuit, like overweight Elvis Vegas period, Um, that initially it was actually very well received and considered like phenomenal showmanship, Um, but that it still set the course for basically his demise or at least sort of, you know, treadmill for the rest of his life. He never really let himself be challenged again, which is, you know, a tragedy because, you know, the comeback special and then this album uh, from Elvis in Memphis is just, so phenomenally good in yeah. its own right but then especially if you then listen to his you know all of his 70s albums um and i love 70s elvis i i mean but it's like a total guilty pleasure you can't ever it's hard to bring, <laughs> it's hard to bring in the uninitiated i used to i had a cd that had his 50s christmas album and then the 70s christmas album and mm-hmm. after it and my sister would always um she's like uh you know she's like a huge beatles tom petty like classic rock Mm -hmm. and you know knows her music but then whenever it would go from the 50s to the 70s she would always have to get up and turn it off and she's like you know and i get it like it's you know more headphone music um (laughs) but yeah you just get so schmaltzy um it's 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 a shame um so yeah it's uh i think you know he just with the Hollywood movies. He was always told by the colonel, you know, oh well, you're going to let down these people and you're going to let down those people, and yeah. he would just sort of keep on being a good soldier.
0: It's interesting uh, that a lot of the you know the British rock people that generation of the '60s, you know, a lot of them thought Elvis died when he joined the army. Right, but it's interesting, you know, that it's that also uh, Nick Cave has written and talked about being a huge fan of Elvis's later years in the '70s and this late '60s. That's his favorite Elvis period.
2: Huh, I think in I think it's almost as consistent as the you know prime fifties period, mm-hmm. um, in terms of just like day to day session to session productivity. I mean, I think these were pretty much the most productive sessions up to that point in his life, and really were only beaten by the marathon sessions he did at the end of nineteen seventy. Um, but there is that's the other thing about Elvis too is that there's so much. There's just so much that he produced um, that this sort of later slash, you know, this period then into the seventies, it's sort of some, in some ways it's kind of more fun because it's less well known. Mm -hmm. Um, It isn't as well mined. It isn't as well, it isn't as much overplayed as a little bit like people that are really into say like the seventies era of the beach boys, you know, like the sunflower album and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, where they don't, they don't listen to pet sounds. They go back and listen to, you know, wild honey or whatever. Uh-huh. And you know, part of its magic is that it's it is obscure, and it is you know more of a cult thing, and you know, oh, well, these are the people that are really into it, you know
1: <laughs> um, And I think there's
2: some of that with Elvis too. Um, sure so
1: well, you know, it's interesting because you did mention this earlier and in the book that you know he was one of the first generation of rock and rollers to have to figure out how to grow old in that world that you know was geared towards young people. Um, so I think that's probably a big part of why he was making decisions. like he didn't really know what to do, how to age into that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. A struggle.
2: <laughs> it, yeah, and it's interesting too. And it, to me, it's interesting that as influential and famous and iconic as he became, his solution was also like a dead end to an extent. Like it's not, no, no one has really seriously gone to Vegas in the style that he did you know, since, because it is, it, you think Rat Pack, you don't think, you know, it's like more like the Who and the Stones and the bands mm-hmm. that basically try to keep on going forever. Like that's sort of the mm-hmm. solution for, you know, for for lack of a better term, you know, Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. his never ending tour, they've been on for, you know, 20 years. Right. <laughs> which is great. I mean, more power to them, but it's, um, yeah, you know, and Elvis wanted to tour the world. And, um, you yeah. know, the Colonel basically, kept him on a leash and you know he played two shows in canada in 1957 and that was it that's the only times he ever played outside the united states which is incredible because his you know australian fan base and his asian fan base are like rabid and Mm -hmm. um he you know and he never set foot on uk soil except for a stopover in scotland when he was in the army um Mm -hmm. so he really he and he he wanted to you read every you know you hear the press conferences you read the little bits and Rolling Stone, that he was able to say, he's like, I got a lot of big fans out in Europe and Asia. I want to go, I want to go see him. And, you know, they sort of, the Colonel first set up Vegas and sort of was like, okay, well, people can come to you now. So that way they can still see you like you want. And then Elvis was like, well, I want, you know, everyone to see me in the world. So he goes, okay. So then he sets up the Aloha from Hawaii satellite show that's then broadcasted, you know, however many hundred different countries. And, you know, it's, it's believed now that, um, I mean, the colonel was definitely, you know, a Dutch expat that had, um, you know, had this sort of secret identity. And it's actually further speculated now that he um, may have actually murdered somebody, which is why he um, fled the country. If you, um, Smithsonian Magazine has an amazing story about it, where it basically lays out the case that he, there's this unsolved murder in, you know, Amsterdam in 1928 or whatever. And it's like on the, the colonel's father was the landlord of the property and it just it it looked really bad mm. for the colonel and mm. um it, that would doubly explain why he would not want his you know story to be exposed so i think he wasn't he didn't trust elvis enough to just let him go by himself and then he i think he sincerely believed that if he left the united states he would not the colonel would not be able to get back in even though he mm. could have um hmm. based on a law that truman passed i think did he have a passport
0: the colonel i don't
2: think so I don't uh-huh. think he ever did because he never he never left the he was scared to leave basically. He always said he was a carney from West Virginia, which is completely false. Right. Um so yeah, and then the whole yeah, he's uh Colonel's just fascinating. He's
0: He is. He's like he's so old school in the in the in the contemporary
2: era. <laughs> he is. And I mean it's just but at the same time he's so he's so consistent. There's a great when Elvis died, Mm-hmm. They said, "Well, what are you gonna do now?" And he said, "What do you mean? what are you? He's like, "I'm gonna keep going. It's just like he was in the army. Yes. <laughs> and, that, and that's it's like sickening that that's how he sees yeah. it, you know, But that's, you know, that's just how it was. It was, um there was a part i don't I don't think i made my book, but it was interesting to see, um, I think it was a, the 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 comeback special people, like Steve Binder and the people that put the um, special together and made it really sort of unique. Um, that the colonel, you know, barges in at first and tells a story about how when he was a carny, he, um, you know, he had this thing where you could pay money and then you could see dancing chickens, and so everyone said, "Oh, I want to see these dancing chickens." Mm-hmm. So he get he takes everybody's money, he takes them in the tent, then he puts a bunch of like dead chickens on like some sort of a shock machine, so they all start <laughs> jumping up and down when he flips the switch, and he's like, you know. Laughing at how like, you know, I'm such a brilliant promoter. Like and Steve Binder and all the like younger generation people were like, Who the hell is this guy? Like what how how in what world is this supposed to impress us? And clearly that was like the colonel was like, Oh, I'm gonna show these slick guys, like this is how real promotion's done. And they're just like, This guy's an idiot and a phony. Like let's, you know, let's get Elvis away from this guy.
0: So to me it's a tragedy that he never
2: made a record with David Bowie. Interesting. Yes. Oh yeah. And the thing is one side of you would be like, Oh, well that would never happen. But then if he could do little drummer boy with um, Bing Crosby, right. anything is possible.
1: Yes. And
2: that would, yeah. There's so many what ifs, what ifs with Elvis. And uh, I always have to, rem-
1: rock. <laughs>
2: I always have to remind myself too, because I'm always like, Oh, if only Elvis had lived when this song existed, he could have covered it. But then half the time he did. Yeah. And he just, I don't think he was interested in contemporary music. Like he wasn't someone no. like, you know, Springsteen comes along who's a huge Elvis fan and you know gets arrested trying to jump the gates in seventy five. Um yeah. and he's you know, but at the same time I, I doubt Elvis hardly knew who he was. There's this um there's this great <laughs> pardon the tangents and edit out whatever you want, of course. Um
1: No, no, we love the tangents. You
2: know, I, I just <laughs> I love it here. I love this story that that I read. I think in uh, a book that Lamar Fike helped write, um, who is one of his mafia people, and uh, David Stanley, I think, was the main writer, who was his stepbrother from um, Vernon's second marriage, and it's about um, Eric Clapton goes to see Elvis, and James Burton at the time, because the seventies is um, you know the guitarist in his band, and James mm-hmm. Burton is you know this legendary mm-hmm. rockabilly guy. Um, And so Clapton goes up and then he goes behind stage and uh, he goes, oh, Elvis, like, you know, your show is great. I'm such a huge fan. He's like, oh, he's like, thank you. What's your name? (laughs) It's like, I'm Eric Clapton. He's like, oh, nice to meet you, Eric. Do you like music? Do you play music? And he's like, I play the guitar. He's like, oh, we'll have to see if James can show you a thing or two over here. And like James Burton is just. Dying, like rolling over in his grave, being like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so it's, you know, I just think if you, the few times I've ever seen parts of his record collection, and this is, you know, what they display at Graceland or whatever, it's, you know, mm-hmm. the most contemporary stuff is like the Supremes. I mean, oh, they say, yeah, that's funny. They say he listened to stuff. Like, I, I know he listened to the Beatles and things like that, or at least he said he did. But I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, um, like that, the the I'll Hold You In My Heart song on this record, you know, the, his version is really most clearly based on the Dean Martin version. Right. And that's, you know, he thought Dean Martin was just, you know, the, the greatest, which yeah. is crazy. Um, <laughs> and just sort of speaks to how, you know, Elvis was a dude born in 1935 and yeah. just being, you know, five years older than John Lennon. And, you know, all those guys and Dylan and whatnot, it makes so much of a difference.
0: It's interesting, though, like compared to like somebody like Frank Sinatra, another non-songwriter. Right. Sinatra, you know, sort of roamed the world, not only touring-wise, but also, you know, you got into like Brazilian music and you got into, you know, of course the jazz singing and stuff. But Elvis is not a person who explored new music avenues that much, except for, you know, what he knows.
2: Well, I would argue that he would maybe be more of... I, I would I would think of him more as a stylist in that uh-huh. he would do different things, but it always sounded like him in a way. Yeah. Um, Because I, I do see it as he's one of the few people that I personally would put in a category like um, Johnny Cash or Lead Belly or Dylan or people mm-hmm. that have sort of tried everything yeah. in terms of, you know, just in the 50s before he went into the army, he only recorded about four cds worth of actual songs like there's really not that much in terms of master recordings but even within those you have gospel you have country you have blues you have folk mm-hmm. um and the thing is he just either he, he sort of brought it to his own style in a way where you know some would say it all sounds the same but you know others might say that he's sort of shading it depending on you know the way that he's singing um, mm-hmm. and sort of so much too, if you listen to the way he puts a song across, you know, in his, in the first, you know, like Blue Suede Shoes or Heartbreak Hotel, and then you listen to something even just three years later, like, you know, now and then there's a fool such as I, mm-hmm. he's more playful. He's, um, he's just sort of trying different stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that I think probably he would say was his big sort of mountain to conquer would be opera music. Cause he really liked, uh, Mario Lanza. Uh-huh. Was one of his, And that was actually an early bonding thing with um, Priscilla because she's this 13-year-old girl that knows who all these opera singers are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, It's Now or Never was sort of his trying yeah. to do that kind of thing. So I think in a way he did roam. I think the difference is Sinatra was willing and able to do songs by anybody. Mm-hmm. And that really just opened it up. Whereas Elvis, as I talk about in this book, up until this album, he pretty much had only done stuff from the Hill and Range um, publishing group. Right. Um, because the yeah. colonel had set it up so they get kickbacks um financially for using those songs and elvis apparently you know again as i say in my book wasn't entirely clued into that mm-hmm. and so there's all these you know songs by bob dylan and whoever else that he's just not aware of um that are you know being written by professional songwriters or, or bands and mm. you know there's they're they're not going to do it because they won't give him the they they don't want to play by the fina- by right. his financial game and just recently there's been so much lately about Dolly Parton in the news and you know that she wrote um or she wanted to have Elvis do um uh I'll I'll always love you which is would be epic mm-hmm. that would have been epic wow. but they said you know she offered it to him and they said okay Elvis will do it like here's what you're going to get from the deal mm mm-hmm. mhm And she was like, I have kids. I hope to one day have grandkids. She's like, I can't. That's not fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she pulled it. She said no. And so it sort of became this, you know, big what if. And of course, Whitney Houston then immortalizes it because she has an incredible voice. But it's like that was originally, you know, that was going to be an Elvis song potentially, but they Mm -hmm. just weren't willing to, um, you know, work with her. Mm. I I have to imagine too, some of that's maybe because she's a female songwriter and they were probably. I don't, I mean, this is my own. Sure, they
1: probably tried to take advantage of her and she was like, no, that's not happening.
2: And she was all, I mean, her whole career, I feel like she gets played off as, you know, she's she's almost made her career on being a lot smarter than people think she is. Like, she's a brilliant businesswoman and a brilliant songwriter. um, Oh, yeah. And just all that. So it's really, you know, it's sad. Um, But that's sort of, that's how it was. And he was so sheltered. And again, I think part of what makes these, you know, 69, these session recordings so special is that Elvis really was sort of let off that leash. And, you know, the, and like Mm -hmm. you said earlier, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tell him if they think a song is shit, they'll tell him, you know, this isn't worthy. And the fact that the finished album only has one hill and range song on it is incredible. Um, There's only, um, Power of My Love is the only one, um, which uh, Lamar Fike actually was the one that got that on and basically just kept waiting for Elvis so that he could kind of pull him aside and make him listen to it cuz he's like I know you're really going to like this one.
0: You mentioned the, the making of the album you said you for you the side one is sort of like a theme related yeah like a concept almost or you know there's the a yeah. beginning and an end. Well I was wondering I want to know how how that is the case but also I want to know was that a Elvis decision or was that a Chips Moman uh, Moment decision? Who are, who's the architect of that? The
2: That's a damn good question. I imagine it was Chips, mm-hmm. um, but it could have also. It, I'm guessing it was either Chips or Felton, Jar, uh, Jarvis Felton, who was Elvis's staff producer right. at RCA, who also co-produced the album. But basically, um, it was Chips' baby, really. Right. Um, but um, well, in terms of the, for me, the way it the way it plays out is the. Um, the, you know, the first song, the Wearing That Loved On look is, has that, um, it, it has that, I the, it opens with, the whole album opens with him saying, I had to leave town for a little while. And it sets up this amazing dichotomy of sort of this fourth wall meta of somebody who's been away from town and then, you know, betrayed by their lover. And, you know, he's sort of, by setting up shop and doing his first Memphis recording since the 50s he's sort of framing the album as though he's this person that has been gone and, you know, rock and roll music has moved on and mm-hmm. sort of now hangs out with all these dirty, suspicious hippies, like the girl in the song. Mm-hmm. And it sets up this whole, um, almost like Odyssey, like, you know, Ulysses type situation right. where he's kind of coming back from this mysterious journey, um, and kind of taking, taking a survey of stuff. And then the only the strong survive being sort of like the, um, you know listening to the mother's advice and sort of you know he's home and then you know home is where the family is and that for elvis was his mom and they of course had their you know very almost sickly relationship um mm-hmm. uh, that was still you know very strong and arguably is what powered him through at least all the initial stuff in terms of you know she was pretty much the only person who ever told him he could do whatever he wanted and uh uh-huh. and it um and then I'll hold you in your heart. I'll hold you in my heart, which is like a. I I hear that as almost like a prayer, mm-hmm. um, like a promise to a loved one. And then Long Black Limousine is my favorite cut on the album, and probably my favorite Elvis song. Period. Um, mm. About the, the dead, uh, the you know the the movie star that comes back dead um, mm-hmm. to the hometown. And um, then it keeps right on a hurt and being right after that always sounded to me like he's mourning that death. And then I'm moving on. as like, well, now he's going to go on to the next side and right. the next town. Um, and so that those for me sort of made a sort of unofficial little like travel log, if you will. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was intended, but I think it's there. I think mm-hmm. I think it can be followed. Whereas I, the second side's more impressionistic, I would say. Sorry.
0: I know I agree with you. Listening to the record and listening to songs in that order and being side one, I think you're correct.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And I don't, I have no idea who, um, who, who programmed it. I do know that Chips said he always wanted it to be one great album and not then a second album of leftovers. And of course, that didn't happen because then they did the Back in Memphis album, which still was excellent, but was like, doesn't begin to compare to this album in terms of song-for-song quality.
0: Is Suspicious Minds recorded for uh, that particular album, or was it
2: recorded earlier? That's a good question. It was recorded in the same sessions. They cut 32 songs total, four of which were released as A-sides of singles, Mm -hmm. um, and a couple that were B-sides to singles recorded elsewhere. Um, Suspicious Minds was recorded pretty much right in the middle of the sessions, at the end of the January sessions, um, and it was pretty much... From the beginning, I think earmarked to be a standalone single. So mm-hmm. what they did was for the follow-up album for From Elvis in Memphis, they did um, they put out Elvis's first double album, um, uh-huh. which was also his first live album. And mm-hmm. remember, this is now this is still 1969, so it's you know the White Album and Blonde on Blonde and all these amazing double albums are you know everywhere. And so now Elvis is going to stake his claim on the double album. So they did the, uh, the, you know, ridiculously titled from, from Memphis to Vegas, from Vegas to Memphis, uh, <laughs> double albums
0: yeah, with a, a mind
2: twist for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, the you know, and so one, the first disc was a live concert from his, you know, recent, uh, mm-hmm. new Vegas shows that, um, I think, I think are just sort of those, like you kind of had to be there. I think mm-hmm. I, mean, I love, love, love Elvis and, I think they're fine. I just I don't think they're worth all the hoopla. I think yeah. Same thing with you know, they say the same thing about his Madison Square Garden show. It's it's like, yeah, you know, the way that they talk about it, the way the critics talk about the next day if you read the papers versus how it sounds to us now, it's kinda like, okay. But um so anyway, the double record, the first record was that the live stuff, and the second record was the um songs that either were unreleased or had only been released as single sides. From um, the Memphis sessions, and um, so they decided not to put "Suspicious Minds" on because at that time Elvis was using that as a finale for his live show in Vegas uh-huh. because that was his current single. So they wanted to put put the live version on the album because um, it was the you know closer of his of his sets, okay. and so they figured it would be too um, you know too much to put. You know both the studio and the live version of the song on the same package so suspicious minds didn't appear on an elvis lp i think until the um 50 worldwide gold records i think mm-hmm. in 1970 um, and until then you could only get it as a single The collect elvis presley albums mm-hmm. is a
0: magnificent adventure <laughs> it is i love
2: them i did i have a um I have a blog for this book and I post Elvis articles and I um adapted something I did years ago where I I reviewed his entire discography, every every album that came out while he was alive. Um oh, wow. and ranked them all, just did like you know a one paragraph my mm-hmm. take on it, and you know, ranked them all from one to five stars. And uh it's it's fascinating. There is just so much bad music it's it's <laughs> you know it's really a roller coaster because you got the 50s stuff and then it's really you know you have to like i think i said at the beginning of the piece it's like you know i rocked through the 50s stuff i had to white knuckle it through the 60s soundtracks mm-hmm. you listen to like the harem scarum soundtrack or paradise hawaii style it's you know mm-hmm. um you know dave <laughs> Dave Marsh has that great line about you know oh well you beginning you're beginning to wonder how Elvis ever you know even slept walked his way through with this stuff until you realize it's because he didn't care either or something right right <laughs> and that's and that's really you know originally my book uh, the from Elvis in Memphis book was actually going to start with him um, recording Old MacDonald for the um, Double Trouble soundtrack uh-huh. which came out in '68 and he recorded it in '67. I'm sorry, he recorded it in 66 and it came out in 67, Mm -hmm. uh, Devil Trouble. And the punchline of basically the opening was going to be, you know, he he storms out of the studio after one unfinished take of Old MacDonald. He's, you know, told that he would only, they would only record it for the movie with the promise it would not be included on the soundtrack album. Of course, they still put it on the soundtrack album. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he's livid about it and whatever. But then the day after... Um, Double Trouble, I think, came out in America on June second, nineteen sixty seven, and of course, the next day, Sergeant Pepper comes out. Yes, mm-hmm. and so that was the, that was the original opening of the book, yeah. um, and uh, we, my editor, like we talked a lot about it, and ended up scrapping it. And I think this is, I'm, I actually like this opening that we have now a lot better, but mm-hmm. um, that was originally sort of my juxtaposition because, you know, it's sort of I want to catch him in sort of the the Nadir, like the the pit of his of what he was doing of sort of hell um, that he was in at the time and you know like old mcdonald's sort of the easiest one but you know i personally love um the yoga is as yoga does which he sings in the film as a duet with the actress um elsa lancaster who was the bride of frankenstein
0: oh yeah she's great
2: Uh great, and she's the yoga instructor in (laughs) easy come easy go (laughs) So he's, he's trying to, he's trying to impress his new age girlfriend, like yoga. So they go to a studio and he's, so he sings a song and then she's the instructor. So she duets with him in the movie, not okay. on the soundtrack. And that, I mean, that's my personal favorite. It's just so like Elvis and the Bride of Frankenstein singing in of color <laughs> film like you just, and that, that's what it is about Elvis. Like you can't make this shit up. Like. Right. I mean, the you know, going to Nixon to get a narcotics badge because he's going to fight drugs, and then you know, (laughs) what does he die of within you know ten years? It's insane. He's Uh, an
0: interesting man, a very tragic figure.
2: He is, and he got there so first, and he got there so centrally that he really, um, yeah, he's just so important in a way um, that I feel like we don't even notice anymore. Um, Like my kids have a
1: he's like the rock and roll mold, you know, in a way. Exactly.
2: Like anyone who's ever tried to be. You know, I listen to I listen to something you said. You know, you mentioned David Bowie. If I listen to the Lady Stardust song on, you know, Ziggy Stardust, and he says, you know, they laughed at the makeup on his face. You know, Elvis wore eyeliner in his early TV yeah. appearances to look right. stuff like, and that's and I'm just like, you know, I think Bowie, in one level, is I mean, he's singing about Hendrix, he's singing about Iggy Pop, but I think he's also singing about Elvis, and yeah. um right sort of this amalgamation that you know, Elvis sort of it's. It's almost like the founding fathers in a way in that, you know, you can you can decide that you don't like George Washington or Hamilton or Jefferson mm-hmm. or whoever, but you have to accept the fact that they sort of broke the mold or set things up. Like it's mm-hmm. sort of something inescapable. They have to be dealt with. And I think Elvis is in that category.
0: I heard that, bo- I heard that boy was an Elvis obs- obsessive.
2: I believe that, uh-huh. which now makes me wonder if they ever met. Well,
0: Gold, um, Golden um Years, the Boy song, I've heard that he wrote that. For Elvis. For Elvis.
2: That's right. I've read that too. And, and that, think, that Yeah. He wasn't able to get it to him. But yeah,
0: I think that's right. Oh, and there's there's this whole mythology about Boy, you know, when he passed away, you know, his last album was called Black Star. Mm-hmm and And there was like a relationship between Black Star, Bowie's song or album with Elvis Presley's recording of a song called Black Star.
2: Not not Flaming Star,
0: not Flaming star, but it's called Black Star,? It's something that was never officially released. It was like huh. from, it was like a B side. It maybe something from one of his uh, music movies. It's a pretty incredible song. I mean, it was mm. Black Star. I never heard of it until You can find it on YouTube, I believe. And if sure. I'm wrong, listeners, I am wrong but i'm wrong i'm really wrong
1: (laughs) i would
2: trust david bowie over anybody so
0: (laughs) (laughs) and sharing the record label rca Records.
2: yeah they did that's right in america that's right all the initial bowie stuff was issued on rca yes
0: so yeah your book is fantastic i really i really enjoyed reading it and it's uh, again on a fascinating figure and I'm introduced to this album from Elvis in Memphis through you, and that's a great uh, adventure in itself. I, I really I really appreciate that.
2: No problem. Glad to, glad to share it. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's a great album. And I feel like um, the 50s performers, but Elvis in particular, I'm always, you know, whenever they do those best album lists or whatever... Um, You know, the 50s guys are always marginalized, you know, they'll maybe be like one Chuck Berry compilation or like Elvis's recordings and sort of that's it. They just kind of get a nod and a wink, whereas, you know, Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd have like five albums yeah. in a way that I just find frustrating and disproportional. That's not to, you know, downgrade those other musicians, but I just think that there's a there's a whole part of the story that since these people came when singles were really the main thing and not so much albums they get sort of pushed aside in a way that I think does injustice to rock and roll as, you know, a music overall.
1: Yeah. I think it's partly generational. People don't know their history and um, it's nice that we have a book like this because it does bring to the forefront just how important Elvis was in the rock and roll
2: world. Thank you. No. And that was, and that's sort of, you know, we've come full circle um, 33 and a third. Uh, cause you know, this series I felt like was the perfect venue to do this, you know, cause Basically, my one of my goals in writing the book, besides sort of advocating for Elvis, getting the um, American Sound Session guys better known, whatnot, was that, you know, to get this album to be, you know, to sell platinum. Like, if this album goes yeah. platinum in the next year or two, I'm going to be, you know, not like I, did. <laughs> I didn't do that. But, you know, that shows it. it's I'm maybe sure gaining helped. some sort of, uh, yeah, like recognition of some sort. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, definitely. you know,
2: time will tell. But, uh, well,
1: the 33 in the third series is pretty well known, pretty well respected. It's kind of amazing to me that there hadn't been an Elvis book until now. Um, that's kind of shocking.
2: Yeah, and they used to show you who else the, would pitch um, when they got the open um, the open calls, and they don't do that anymore. But at one point, I the two times they did that, and there were over 600 pitches each um, time, wow. there was one other person that did an Elvis Presley record. Um, but most of it, they thought it was all going to, they opened it up for the first time that one year. And they said that it was the first time you could do an artist who had already been done. And I guess they were all bracing themselves for, you know, 50 Beatles, or Rolling Stones books. And instead they got, just you know, five people did Weezer's Pinkerton, five people did like, they might be giants. It's just, it's interesting to see. You know what drives people?
1: Well, I think uh, again, I think it might be a generational oh, thing. I think it def- of the definitely. The submit are younger and aren't familiar with the older stuff, so that could be it. Who knows?
2: No, I think you're right. Elvis will never die.
1: You've you've corrected this wrong. <laughs>
2: yeah, you rearranged the letters in Elvis and it spells libs.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect way to close out the podcast. Yeah, Elvis, Elvis, lives. Yes, Elvis, Elvis lives. Excellent. Elvis lives.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, if you don't mind, if I can just plug my social media stuff for the book. Yes, please oh. do.
1: I was going to ask you, what's the URL for your uh, blog that you were talking about? Cause that sounds like a lot of fun.
2: Yes. Um, I sort of, uh, yeah, I set up a blog for the book that's um, from Elvisandmemphis.com. and um, And it's, it, talks about the book, but then other things that I would have wanted to put in the book, but I didn't have space that, you know, would have been appendices. Mm -hmm. So I did, I couldn't find anything in the sort of greater world that, for instance, listed, you know, session by session, who exactly is on each recording and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, all the different issue history stuff. So I have basically like all the information you think, I think you'd ever want about who, who recorded what on the album what how it was issued over the years Um, reviews of different anthologies of this material that had come out Um, Mm -hmm. and then also um, a friend actually recently that uh, was talking to me and was like oh you should do a playlist with all the covers and all the Elvis versions and I'm like yes I should so Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that together I think Um, so that's at Elvis Presley Uh, I'm sorry that's at fromelvisinmemphis.com and photos and, and articles and stuff about the book and whatnot. And um, then the social media is from Elvis and 33 and a third, like from Elvis in three, three, three is uh, the Twitter handle. And that stuff it's um, this day in history of Elvis, but then it also does albums that have um, 33 and a third books about them. I'll do little, you know, mm-hmm. like yesterday tapestry turned 50, and there's a tapestry book coming out next month. Okay. Um, that's going to be awesome. Um, and so uh, there's that. And then Instagram is Presley Day by Day, which, again, it, it follows the Twitter site. And it's um, just this day in Elvis history, basically.
1: Oh, that's fun. Okay, great. Oh, so, yeah.
2: Good stuff. And, every uh, day is Elvis Day. Every day is Elvis Day. He's done. He's done <laughs> that's the thing. He played so many shows in the 50s and so many shows in the 70s that he pretty much did a show every day of the year. <laughs> um wow. so yeah it's pretty he's he was he was busy. I mean for all the time he spent he spent sitting around which is you know at least 10 years of his life he was also very productive. So
0: great. Right. Excellent.
2: All right. Well, thank you and thanks for having all me. All
1: right. Well, thank you so much. Thank it you. was such a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Good. Yeah, I had fun. This was great. And uh your show is awesome and I'm glad that you're doing it and yeah, reaching out to authors and getting the advocacy out there yeah. for great books. So, I appreciate yes. it. Our That's project. the plan. Our we're project. just
1: sharing what we love. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What's your next book?
1: So, the next book is called Relax, Baby, Be Cool The Artistry and Audacity of Serge Gainsbourg by Jeremy Allen. Brand new book coming out, I think, tomorrow.
2: My God, um, from Elvis uh, to Serge.
1: 12th. Yes. That's a beautiful <laughs> yes,
2: transition, if I may be so bold.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We like to mix it up here, definitely. <laughs> to be unexpected, if we can.
2: <laughs> from Wagner
0: yeah. to Elvis to surge gangs.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> You've got to keep everybody guessing and right. on their toes. Absolutely. So it's a big world out there. Yes. You've got it. It's interesting. Yes. Um well, so crazy. yeah, so thank you everybody for listening to Book Music and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news and we've got playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music and there's links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com b-o-o-k-m-u-s-i-k.com so thank you very much everyone
0: thank no you